That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's a, it's a solo clinical bite episode with me, Dr. Dave. Um, but I, I hope you, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'll miss Michelle. She brings some, she brings some fun, but, um, here I am alone today. So anyways, I'm going to, uh, bring some stuff, uh, to your attention, whether you're a patient or a clinician, uh, I hope you always get some value out of this podcast, but this one might be more targeted towards the clinicians, especially, uh, those who do physical exams or do some hands-on treatment, um, in their approach to dealing with overall health, uh, with a particular focus or, um, uh, strategy being through the gut. So, um, what I wanted to talk about today was some of the, uh, notable relationships I've found between, uh, different areas of the abdomen, uh, the structures of the abdomen and, um, and functions or, or symptoms, um, and how those symptoms can sort of guide your treatment or maybe uh, guide your assessment. So I'm putting together some notes just to do a course to share with people. Um, in the future, I'll be doing this course uh, to share with naturopaths, in particular, how to do a, you know, a good uh, examination of the gut, because I talk about it all the time, but you can't know the functions uh, as a clinician, if you don't know some something about the structures, and, and the more you know about the structures, the more it can guide your your uh, assessments and treatments. Uh, I say it all the time. I don't I don't use that many different kinds of interventions now, uh, because when you use a hands on approach, which allows you to assess the structures that are responsible for these functions, uh, it's a whole new world and it clarifies things, makes things way simpler. So. Um, yeah, I guess that's directed more towards the naturopathic pr practitioners, but you deserve it. Um, uh, thanks for listening. So I want to talk about a few of them uh, and a few of the structures that I've noticed the most types of uh, correlations with include the stomach, 
um, and uh, pr probably the stomach primarily, and a couple things with the cecum, um, the the colon, and uh, let's say maybe just like epigastric sensitivity, uh, like just when you touch someone in the in the area be between the xiphoid and and the umbilicus, and it's just really really sensitive. Um, if you touch people there, a lot of people are very sensitive there. There's so much going on there. Um, and maybe I'll dig deeper on that one time in the future. That area is so, so important. So even if you're a patient, um, listening, if you touch your, you know, your abdomen between the, the belly button, the umbilicus and the, uh, and the xiphoid. So the, you know, that bottom pointy part of your rib cage, if you're sensitive there, um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some gut issues going on in the upper GI. Um, and then again, those can lead to it's just sort of irritations that contribute to anxiety or, or yeah, some sort of anxiety. I, I don't find too many people uh, who have only anxiety without stomach issues. And I mean, stomach proper, not just entire gut issues, but stomach in particular, or vice versa. So someone with uh, stomach issues often has um, anxiety or, or some uh, feelings of being ill at ease most of the time, nervous system wise, um, probably due to the regulation of the vagus nerve. So uh, let's talk about um, a couple of the most common ones. One I wanted to talk about is the, the relationship uh, between the stomach and the, and the transverse colon. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming it's a transverse colon based on what I've done with my hands-on approach. But basically, I'm talking about the gastrocolic reflex. Gastro means stomach, colic means colon reflex. So, you know, there's, you don't have to think about it. When you eat something, your colon starts to move, which makes sense, right? Um, you've got new food coming in the uppermost part of the linear system of the digestive tract which means to the bottom part of the system, hey, you can start to move the stool along, right? So it's a very logical sort of reflex. Um, that's why a lot of time when people uh, eat something within half an hour or, or maybe less in some cases, um, they have to have a poop right after and that's your gastrocolic reflex. So, so it's, a, it's a normal physiological thing. And I think if you just think about it, it makes sense. Got more food coming in. So let's move along the poop and sort of, you know, repeat that sort of, logical aspect of the linear relationship there right so what can happen though is that people who have really sensitive stomachs they have this crazy sort of sensitivity or i would just say like a really really hyper hyperactive response in terms of the gastrocolic reflex so they'll be the people who have you know like one or two drinks of coffee and they're on the toilet and it's loose and it's like urgent um so i would say that's just a sign that the sort of microstructures, the cells, the tissues that line the inside of the stomach. Maybe the nerves are a little bit more sensitized. This, those visceral nerves get sensitized, right? After infection and inflammation. So they could be extra sensitized. Just another reason to have a demulcent, to have something like slippery elm, uh, deglycerizinated licorice, uh, marshmallow root, maybe aloe vera. Don't use it as much, but just that hyperreflexive gastrocolic reflex is just another sign um, that possibly you need to to up your demulcent game. And I've talked about demulcents uh, a lot, so uh, check back on old episodes or look them up yourself. They're beautiful things. Um, and I think just from a uh, this is this is just my uh, uh, experience tells me that it's worth looking into uh, this relationship. The 
the reason the stomach uh, possibly causes this gastrocolic reflex, uh, maybe due to just anatomical proximity, meaning the transverse colon goes right in front of the stomach. It's attached, right? So if you irritate the stomach or if the stomach gives like a hyper irritable response, it's going to send that signal, uh, likely again, I don't, I don't know specifically, but likely through that, uh, link to the transverse colon, and if you just look up the anatomy, just Google the anatomy between the transverse colon and the stomach, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, therefore, you might have a, a better sort of mechanistic understanding of what's going on when uh, you have to poop real quick after you eat something or you have something that's very irritable to the stomach. That's actually, that's worth uh, pointing out too. Stomach irritants will probably make this uh, more exaggerated. So coffee being a really, uh, really common sort of stomach irritant. There's other stomach irritants. Um, and the number of stomach irritants you have is probably directly proportional to how irritable your stomach is. So um, helps you focus on the stomach there a little bit and probably, probably not blame the colon, although the end result is, you know, maybe looser bowels or, or, you know, this urgency. I probably wouldn't blame the colon in that case. I would blame either the the stomach or the relationship between the stomach and the transverse colon. Okay, next one. Um, irritation of the diaphragm by upper gastrointestinal structures and the relationship to the phrenic nerve irritation and upper shoulder and neck pain. I've heard this so many times. I hold my tension in my neck. And I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and say that most of the time I don't think that's entirely true. Uh, or like precise, I think what is going on is when people are anxious or in states uh, where they are um, not in uh, rest and digest, a little bit more fighty, flighty. Um, that's the state of uh, people in the Western world a lot of time, right? Go, go, rat race, you know, I'll make fun of all you Toronto people. <laughs> um, but yeah, like we just, we live in a state of sympathetic overdrive a lot of the time. So uh, people will say then, oh, I'm I'm so, uh, you know, I hold it in my neck. Well, I guess you feel the symptom in your neck, but let me go through a possible, again, mechanistic or anatomical sort of understanding of what is pr probably going on there and give a shout out to uh, the yogis uh, while I do so. It's, it's possible that the irritation of the diaphragm or, or just like improper breathing so improper uh, expansion and, and contraction of the diaphragm due to living in that state of fight or flight sends uh, sensory information through the phrenic nerve. Because uh, remember the phrenic nerve, uh, phren, any PHR usually means something to do with diaphragm. So like diaphragm, phrenic nerve, uh, which, which originates from C345 in the neck. Uh, sends that signal back up to C345. And guess what? C345 also, uh, you know, innervates the neck and the shoulders. So what I think is probably going on is that people are not breathing properly, or there's irritation of the diaphragm by upper GI structures, like most commonly, probably the stomach, spleen, liver, those things that really just abut onto the diaphragm. Um, or maybe something like a hiatal hernia, where there is a an actual compromise in the structure of the diaphragm uh, in its relationship to the stomach where the stomach's sort of sliding through and irritating it, right? Because there's sensory information coming from the diaphragm. And then that um, leads you to sort of hold tension in your neck. So uh, you can go and I used to treat this a lot before I knew this relationship. 
um, you know, treat the neck with some uh, acupuncture to the traps, levator scap, maybe you go to the Cairo every couple of weeks, maybe you do all your physio exercises and all that, and it doesn't get better. Well, that's because the, the root cause may be quite often coming from uh, mechanical irritation of the diaphragm. And then that transmission to the phrenic nerve, C3, 4, 5, boom, into the neck and shoulders. Cool? Okay. Um, another one that's really important, I think, and uh, again, I, I've had this uh, sort of uh, progressively uh, deeper understanding of mid-thoracic pain and its relationship to the stomach and the structures of the upper GI tract. So it, again, it doesn't have to be the stomach, but I would say at least the upper GI tract. If you look at uh, some of the uh, neurology, you'll see why um, this sort of visceral pain can can manifest in those areas. Um, and I don't want to nerd out too much, but you know, you'll see that mid thoracic pain is related to uh, sensory info from from the stomach. And it's this it's this kind of like visceral pain is this kind of uh, deep kind of like it's got an emotional component to it almost because the it almost it's like gnawing and, and it just feels extra i don't know annoying whereas you know if you have carpal tunnel or something like a some sort of like musculoskeletal issue you know it's there and you can you say oh, yeah it's there and it, but it doesn't drive you crazy uh and also it's very hard to sort of locate where it's at with this visceral manipulate or visceral um uh, sensory uh, aspect where it's just, it's more like, I say it's like AM radio. It's not a really clear signal. It's kind of, well, it's over here. It's over here. No, if I press there, it feels better. No, I press there. It feels better. Um, and if it's between the shoulder blades and it's that type of thing going on, then um, you really have to think about the stomach esophagus complex, uh, perhaps other aspects of the upper GI pancreas and, um, uh, duodenum, duodenum, whatever you want to call it. But I'd really be thinking about the stomach and, and esophagus and its relationship to mid-thoracic pain that doesn't get better with good physio, chiro, RMT, whatever you see. Um, it's it's worth, again, uh, trying maybe a demulcent or, or investigating a little bit deeper into what's going on with the stomach. Uh, just I touched on it earlier, but just that epigastric sensitivity and the vagus nerve and anxiety symptoms. There's just a real link there. And I've, I've talked about it uh, previously and, and I do want to go a little bit deeper into detail with this, but uh, you know, touch that epigastric part. Epi means above, gastric means stomach. So that area above the stomach, so that's above sort of where the belly button is and underneath the xiphoid. Um, if it's really sensitive, I mean, there's, some, there's something going on in the upper GI, but there's so much going on there that you, um, uh, you need to, well, if you're a clinician, you need to dig deep and figure out what's going on uh, there. And I think you do need to touch people's bodies. Sorry, I'm going to say it. A lot of virtual stuff going on, which is great in many ways, but let's not forget to touch people's bodies. That epigastric area is chalk block full of uh, um, really important neurology, uh, circulatory organs. There's a celiac plexus. Uh, there's the pancreas, which is so protected in the middle of the body, right? It's just so many things. There's the stomach with the all the vagal inputs. Uh, well, there's vagal efferents there too, but all the vagus nerve inputs coming from there. It's it's so important, especially if someone's kind of nervous and anxious. Um, another one, this one, I've, I'm sure I've talked about it too, but it's a real, it's kind of like a giveaway. The same idea as the uh, 
the irritation of the the diaphragm there's a real relationship between um the stomach and the throat esophagus symptoms uh i'd include lately some post nasal drip and sinus congestion i'm seeing so many um correlations and i again i don't know a hundred percent but i'm seeing the correlation is quite striking between post nasal drip sinus congestion and problems with the stomach and and um often the throat because remember the stomach and the throat it's really just like one long tube the stomach's like big and strong and got those three sort of uh big muscles uh in terms of like layers of muscles that is and so the esophagus is is kind of like the stomach's bitch in a way, uh, it just gets pulled along for the ride. So you get a lot of like, <coughs> um, that sort of throat clearing thing. When someone does that, you got to be thinking about the stomach as a, as a possible uh, way in. And it really, uh, it really makes it maybe easier when you're trying to think of like, what the hell do I do for my post nasal drip sinus congestion? I'll touch a bit more on sinus in a, in a minute, because there might be some relationship to the, uh, to the large intestine well there is one that's for sure um but yeah post nasal drip make sure you include some sort of stomach evaluation or treatment uh in your post nasal drip um strategy i think that's uh that should make it a little bit easier and remember like the stomach is it's it's the border it's kind of like uh the border guards for your immune system of the whole gastrointestinal tract like it's got an important job it's right there at the beginning of the whole thing. So when things go down the tubes and they hopefully only go one way, unless you're, well, it can go backwards. Obviously that's why we have the ability to, to vomit and get rid of uh, toxins. If this, if they're sensed in the stomach um, and they need to go out the other way, but it's not an ideal situation by any means. Um, so the stomach has this really important sort of border guard uh, immune system uh, job. And so I do think a lot of our people who have sensitivities in general, um, a lot of that sensitivity is going to be coming from the stomach being hypersensitive and the immune systems being um, ready to ready to go with whatever they meet that they don't like. Um, so when you get some sort of like post nasal drip, sinus congestion, sneezing, whatever, like pretty much as soon as you eat something, I would bet that that food is not good for you right now. I would also bet that you have to do something to uh, sort of tone down the reactivity of the immune system to that um, food. Cause that's a big thing with what I do now. I, I try not to run around every single food, do some crazy, like crazy restrictive diet, although there's a place for them and, you know, people have different opinions on that and that's okay. I think there's a place for them, but I think it's better to try and build up the resilience of the organs and the functions um, and the tissues and their functions so that you can tolerate a little bit uh, greater diversity of foods. Um, and so, yeah, look for that post-nasal drip, those immediate symptoms being related to uh, anatomical structures like the stomach that are closer to the beginning of the GI tract, right? If something's happening within five, 10 minutes of eating, it's, it's not some reaction of the colon, it's, it's going to be some reaction of the upper GI structures. And I would say most likely the, the stomach in many cases. Um, what else did I want to say about sinus congestion? Yeah. Oh yeah. I said with a note about this, the large intestine, I do find uh, when I'm doing the hands-on visceral work with people that their sinuses sometimes clear. 
uh, or open up when I'm working with the colon, especially the ascending colon cecum area. Um, and I've noticed that on myself when I do that work on myself, I'm just lying in bed, whatever, working on my, uh, just lying in bed, working on my colon, just another day for me, lying in bed, working on my colon. Um, I'll notice my, my sinuses will really, uh, open up. So I think there's something there, but that's a newer kind of finding it's, which is funny because, um, lungs and large intestine are, are related in Chinese medicine. So any of you Chinese medicine trained people, um, that might make that relationship that sometimes seems difficult to make. I found some of the, the um, relationships in Chinese medicine between the organs, the paired organs to be sort of difficult to understand at times. Uh, now, less so, less so, especially with um, the insight that you get from doing the hands-on work and seeing in real time what symptoms, what things change as, you've, uh, as you enact some sort of small force or whatever on, on these these specific structures. Um, another one I've noticed too is is th this relationship between um, the cecum and and um, the rest of the colon. It's, it's kind of like the cecum is um, the propulsive force of the colon. So if the cecum iliocecal valve area, so that's on the right side, uh, you know, somewhere between your belly button and your uh, right hip bone. That's where you'll find the cecum. And if you feel uh, palpate that area on you and it's, you know, a little bit tender, then maybe there's something going on in that area. I mean, that's where there's the most bugs. I think that's the highest density of microbiota in the body. So a lot of tenants there, hopefully those are good tenants. Um, but what I, what I have noticed is that when I work on that area, there's like this propulsive action, um, uh, from working on that towards the distal part of the colon. So you, you release the, the iliocecal area or cecum ascending colon, the first part of the colon. And it seems to be like the motor of the whole uh, colon. It sort of gets, it gets things moving forward. Um, that's, a, that's something I've realized more for, uh, recently too. And, you know, if you have any, um, if you, if you want to, you know, palpate yourself. I always say, um, even unskilled, but well-intentioned, uh, touch on the right area can really give you some benefit and, um, and lighter is better. So I'm not telling you to go and do this yourself. Although I guess I could be seen as telling you to go and do this on yourself as long as you're careful. Uh, but yeah, anyway, hope, hope no one tells on me for saying that, but, um, naturopaths and other, other practitioners who are palpating people's bodies. That's one of the, that's one of the juiciest spots. I would say the two juiciest spots, uh, at this point in my understanding of the structures and functions of the gastrointestinal tract would be the pylorus or the end of the stomach, uh, where it's turning into the duodenum and the ileocecal valve. And you know what, they are highly connected. I, I see this relationship all the time and that's a, that's a smooth transition into another relationship, the pylorus and the ileocecal valve. Which again, if you just use logic, the understanding of sort of the linear uh, aspect of the of the gastrointestinal tract, it makes a lot of bloody sense. You've got food that's that's being released from the stomach, meaning that's the pylorus, right? You've got the two, you've got the two sphincters. You got the one at the top to keep food in there, and you got the one at the bottom to keep food in there. Uh, let's say two to six hours. That's how long food should probably be staying in the stomach. And it think of what the stomach does, man. It's crazy. It it 
it basically takes food from a solid state to a liquid state. Um, so if you ever have food that's in your stools, blame that pylorus. It came through too fast. It's not your colon's fault. Anyway, so if you can imagine, if you were like designing the body, you would probably say, let's design some system where when food is done being digested or, or broken down primarily by the stomach, we can give a signal to the ileocecal area, the valve there that allows um, for the transfer of uh, what used to be food from the area of absorption to the area of uh, the colon. So we're, we're going from the small intestine to the large intestine, we've sort of accepted, okay, at this point we've reabsorbed or we've absorbed most of the nutrients and minerals and everything that we need, but there's still, um, now we have to pull back the, the salt and the water to reuse those, right? So in the colon, that's the main job is reabsorbing salt and water. There's some other stuff that happens too, but for the sake of this uh, relationship, let's leave it at that. So you've got food coming out of the stomach, new stuff, ready to go, boom, awesome. So what do you do? You tell later later on down the line, that ileocecal area, you can say, you know what, time to open up, release it to the colon, and let's probably have a poo soon um, so we can make room for the new stuff to come in. So um, that that's another really, really important relationship. And I, I would say if you do any kind of acupuncture, if you're uh, skilled enough to do that, uh, that's actually the, the one uh, pylorus point is basically it's just CV12. If anyone does acupuncture, that's conception vessel 12 or Ren 12. Uh, that's a, ooh, that's a high, high yield spot. And it goes back to that importance of the, uh, epigastric area. Um, a couple of other relationships that I've found that, um, I'm not sure exactly. Well, the one let's, I'll tell you what, I'll just tell you what there are and you can judge them for yourself. There is a definite relationship, and I did not learn this from the Baral Institute. They don't talk about this relationship, but what I noticed was when I did any kind of uh, visceral uh, manipulations or mobilizations of the small intestine or the root of the small intestine, probably more specifically, um, it really changed a lot of women's periods. Um, so their menses, not the duration of the of uh, the period, but the menses themselves were actually usually less painful, uh, maybe a little bit more flow, um, and probably a little bit shorter if they were longer. They, you know, say they were like a five or six day menses, it would now be like a three or a four. And I noticed it a few times in a row. So now I just basically warn any women, I say, look, there's some relationship here between the small intestine. So if you say you're someone who has like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or whatever, uh, or just cramps around the umbilicus, because that's sort of like the home base, you, you could say of the small intestine. It's a very, maybe a little bit uh, below there, but the umbilicus, if you got issues around that umbilical area, um, I mean, right around it, um, that's more likely the small intestine that's sort of crampy and, and all that. You may have some relationships there between that and the uterus. Um, and maybe other pelvic organs uh, as well, maybe some relationships through uh, the ovaries and fallopian tubes. I'm not sure. All I can tell you is that uh, dysmenorrhea or painful periods and the, uh, relationship, the relationship to the small intestine, it's a thing. Um, and then one that I don't see as often, but it's still worth bringing up is the relationship of the small intestine again to lower back pain. And I'm talking more about that sort of SI joint area. 
um, if you look at where the the root of the mesentery of the small intestine attaches, attaches to, guess what? The spine, because everything does, it's not like... um, stuff doesn't just hang there right with it has to have some sort of structure to hold on and it, it, it does come from the spine so you will see um issues often uh often sometimes uh between the lower back pain and the small intestine now you know i i'm lucky enough to work at a place where i got wonderful chiros and physios and rmts and all that and i i i wouldn't say come to me first if you got lower back pain i'd say do your you know more conventional approaches. Um, they've got great assessments and, and, you know, like I said, I work with some great ones, so it's easy for me to say, go to them first, or did you go to them first? And, and if they've gone to these chiros, physios, what have you, and they didn't get the results they needed, then yeah, maybe, maybe it's worth looking into the idea that tensions in the small intestine, the root thereof, um, may be contributing to, uh, to lower back pain. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's some of the more notable relationships I've found. It obviously means a lot more when you touch the body and you have clinical experience or personal experience if you're a patient. Um, don't, don't, feel, uh, don't hesitate to, to palpate your own abdomen a little bit really, really lightly and, so, and find out if there's some areas that are uh, more sensitive. Even if you can break it down to like the left or the right or the right upper quadrant, the lower left quadrant, it might be helpful in terms of figuring out what's going on uh, for yourself if you're a patient, um, but also for you, uh, you naturopaths. Um, those, those areas of the body and, and the symptoms that go with them, uh, I hope those relationships are, are helpful for you uh, going forward and, and giving the best care to, uh, to your patients or if you're a patient, uh, finding the best care that you need. Okay. Um, thank you all for listening to another clinical bite. Uh, I have Michelle again next week, so talk to you then. Okay. Bye-bye. That naturopathic podcast, TNP. Hello there. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada.